Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported by your donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. This is a very special episode in which I got the chance to introduce two of my heroes, Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman and science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. They shared a lively conversation together that you now have the chance to eavesdrop on with their permission. In their dialogue, they talked about when violence is legitimate in situations like the Tibetan or Ukrainian invasions, their personal relationships to the Dalai Lama, whether Buddhism could have its roots in shamanism going back 50,000 years or more, and how we might make Kim Stanley Robinson's fictional climate solutions from his latest novel, Ministry for the Future, start working in real life. In this intimate conversation between two people who've wanted to meet each other for a long time, Robert Thurman and Kim Stanley Robinson speak frankly about their politics and their ideas both for saving the planet and for simple mental health in a world that's filled with climate and social emergencies. As Kim Stanley Robinson put it, spiritual and political advice. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Hello. Good to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. Thanks for getting up early. The book has done really well, you're saying. Is, is you... I would say it has done very well. It's uh, being translated into 16 or 20 languages. Oh, it's... yeah. The people who are already in the ministries for the future that currently exist under other names. They love this book because it it says they are part of a bigger movement and they can succeed. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. The, the desperation for this story is also a kind of a, a joy at being recognized or acknowledged to be real already. And that's a lot of that's a lot of people. So I'm pleased. I'm ready to keep on swinging. Anyway, I love the book. I'm stuck in the middle of the Olympics and the guy with their hand who got cut off and he's like figuring out the speed of light. And I, I, that book is, you're an 800 page man. Yeah. I apologize. No, 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 no. I enjoy it. I'm enjoying so much. And then I tried to start the other Kimbalong. I got a little bit into it and I can't finish because then I suddenly realized from Scott that the Dalai Lama was the, Rudra Chakrin. Yeah. yeah. How did you find Rudra Chakrin? Well, I can't remember, but when I was writing Green Earth, I wanted to inject these Buddhists 
into Washington, D.C. culture and have them make a kind of diplomatic error thinking that going to the National Science Foundation would be going to an important place, which is a kind of a joke. But they maybe were right. Maybe science was the place to go. The Dalai Lama writing about science being a force for Buddhism. Oh, he wanted to go. When he first came in 1979, he begged them to take him to NASA in Houston. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, they wouldn't let him go because then the Chinese would have considered it like he was being treated as a head of state or something. Oh, yeah. So they declined to let him go. And then he would have liked to go to the NSF. He went to the Congress many times. But he never went to the NSF, I believe, because, again, they always wanted to hide a little bit from the Chinese their full measure of like for the Dalai Lama, which they all did. For example, Clinton never invited him. Gore would invite him. And then Clinton would come over and drop in on Gore's office. You know. Yeah. I saw Nancy Pelosi introduce him at the basketball stadium in Washington, D.C. to give a talk. This would have been about um, 2006. And Pelosi was kind of a little boring and she didn't seem to quite get it. But the Dalai Lama took over and At first, he was speaking in Tibetan, and his translator was translating, and then the Dalai Lama just uh, switched over to English and took over, and he spoke to a crowd of maybe 13,000 people for two hours. A lot of Buddhists from all over the world were in D.C., and they came up on stage, and they got a scarf around their shoulders. I'm forgetting the name. The Kadar. Yeah, and I had the idea. The idea was this, that Tibetans had found and released the Panchen Lama, after he was kidnapped and got taken to Washington, D.C. and was pretending to be an ordinary attache staff member. And the Dalai Lama, seeing him, recognized him and they recognized each other on stage because the people coming up to be greeted by him on stage, they were in an ecstasy or they were grinning. I mean, one thing that you know that I did not know is the Dalai Lama is such a comedian He wants to make you laugh. He really is. In fact, it sometimes actually shocked me. It must be the weirdest life ever. He's made the best of a very strange hand that has been dealt him in this particular incarnation. His life so strange and everybody treating him as if he were something quite unusual, which he is. But he's also, as he keeps saying over and over again, I'm just an ordinary monk. I'm a monk. I'm an ordinary guy. Simple monk. Yeah, he has to insist on that, I think. Oh, yes, he really does. He's done such a good job of coping with the historical situation. He really has. And people don't know he's he's created a miracle by having still of 120,000, maybe nobody knows the real number of Tibetans in India, 25,000 are still monks. Ah, uh, yeah. They're very industrious. They're like the Swiss. You know, they, they, those who have worked have created prosperous settlements. And they all could have done that. You'd think they would. But the younger ones, still, there's still a lot of them. And they come out of Tibet. They come from Mongolia. And uh, they want that life of sublimated, you know, the erotic energy into the visualizations and meditations, etc. Because they admire him so much. He somehow kept that alive. It's a, really is amazing, actually. I have a question for you. Yes, yes. I went to McLeod Ganj last April. There was a small group. 
It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was a wonderful experience. And I saw what you were saying about the Tibetans holding their culture together, being industrious. But what I also learned was there's a an opposition movement. Uh, they want to use violence. They want to fight back. And oh, yes, the young people. Yeah, some of them. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, it seems to me to create a really complicated uh, kind of uh, situation going forward if the Tibetans can hold together and hold to nonviolent. Well, you, you, see, you see, there are a lot of people who like that, especially one guy in Damsala who's always talking about it. There is a video, actually, that I saw once. That guy and, and Damianobo, another writer, they met His Holiness at one time, and His Holiness was like rubbing his hands together like this to them and saying, hey, all right, guys, you want to fight? Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Now, where are we going to get the guns? Just like that, showing great enthusiasm. And then of course, they're like, oh, I've got When is they did resist very violently and very strongly in the East for 10 years. Yeah. And um, the CIA helped them in a typical Eisenhower way. In other words, filing the numbers off the guns and giving them old guns. So, I mean, they didn't have really serious help. Yeah. And the Chinese, it's not like the Ukrainians. The Chinese outnumber them way more than the Russians do the Ukrainians. Yeah. And uh, they, you know, they were not European, easily accessible by media, et cetera. Nobody knew what was going on. And the British betrayed them as they did in 1923. Winston Churchill blocked a Tibetan embassy from 13 Dalai Lama to the League of Nations. Like three times, they even caught him on a train going from Paris to Geneva, the closest he got. So then, of course, it was only little clandestine help they had at first. And they fought violently. Dalai Lama never told them to it. There is a Tibetan sutra, Sanskrit sutra, but Tibetan translation, that says, if you're a king and you're invaded, it's ethical to defend yourself if you can successfully do so and chase the people out. And then don't invade them, but make a treaty and let them know if they ever do it again. But if you can't defend yourself, it is unethical to defend yourself because you'll kill quite a few on the way in, you'll lose, and then they'll be more vicious when they dominate you. There's no holy war theory in Buddhism, unlike the Western theories, but there is allowable defense, but basically to minimize the overall violence is the idea. You know? yeah, yeah. If you can quickly push them back out, by all means do so. But I wonder, do you think, it seemed to me there's a, a strength in the Tibetan culture, language, people, their tradition, the difficult landscape they grew up in, Buddhism itself, that they can take the long view and say, we will just live on. They do that. That's what they do. But how long can that go? Well, the thing is, Dalai Lama, the problem is, Dalai Lama would love to retake rebirth now, already in his 87, I just saw him in October, I was going to again try for the third time to retire from the job, uh, the culture job. We've known each other since 1964, you know, and when we were fellow students, actually. So in a way, he, he, he likes and doesn't like me because I don't treat him specially, except in a ritual setting. And then he says to me, well, we're going to be doing many more lifetimes. Not only can I not resign at 82, but I, you know, we're gonna, I'm, I'm booked already for next life. Or whatever we can do. You know, in terms of the Dalai Lama, when he went away, he made a, 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 like a boxer. As he left our session, he 
punched like a boxer saying, I'm going to keep on fighting. It was an inspirational <laughs> moment. Let's use him as inspiration and keep on fighting going forward. He's, he's staying until 110. You know, thinking about talking to you, and I just, I love talking to you. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm so thrilled. I really, I can't tell you how much I am. I have something that I want to tell you about. You wrote that ministry for the future, that someone would envision a way in which we can fight back the dark money. Yeah. Because the only reason it's been like this is dark money. Yeah. You know, well, it's only a few people. Everybody else knows they don't want to be flooded and burned and, and nobody does. And there's few people, really very few, relatively speaking, maybe 500, maybe 5,000 in the, what I call them, heteropaths, mm. petroleum psychopaths. Petropaths for short, and they have been keeping this going for decades, you know, yeah. and nobody on the supposed liberal side, some of whom have many excess dollars, have tried to fight back. And I've even had a debate with one billionaire who claimed that we couldn't do advocacy with money. There's a lot of young, uh, I call them the mini billionaires. There are a lot of rich young people from Silicon Valley. They immediately realize they have more money than they need and they want to do good. They don't want the biosphere to crash. They are willing to try anything. They don't know what to do. They haven't got the lesson of Nancy Pelosi and that you need to fight in the political realm as well as all the other realms. Yeah. But they are looking to change things by way of throwing their wealth into the cause. I know, but then they turn libertarian. Is the well, that would be the dark side. Yes, the libertarian. Yeah, well, they need uh, they need spiritual and political advice. And truly, I was at a conference that was uh, Stuart Brand and Jerry Brown, and I were the old men trying to advise these young, very rich and well-meaning technical people. Very smart. What should we do? They said. And we said, uh, go to Washington, D.C. and establish a, a think tank lobbying firm, advertising firm. You told them, yes. And spiritual center. Yes. All, all one. All one. And they said, oh, no, we want to turn the control knobs on society directly. And I was thinking, but wait, that is what we just described to you. But they didn't get it. So I it's know. a process. Yes, 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 yes. Now, there's a fine line you have to run here. We're in such danger the situation is so grave. The forces of darkness are so strong and entrenched and rich. When I say I see the turning of the tide, it's a little bit projective, like a wish, but also I'm seeing real things. Yeah, sure. The template is real. I didn't uh, make it up. I reported on it. And when you report on it and put it out there, then people can seize on it as a vision and understand and that they, they aren't alone in this. And the, the correlation of the forces, the attempt to find points of leverage, yes, and, uh, you can see it happening. And, yes. And so this is the thing that I asked the Dalai Lama. This is what I ask you. This change in people's feelings of what's real, what's important, that's the crucial thing, especially for the, the privileged, middle-class, prosperous world. Yes. Given the power, I mean, this is why it is smart to advertise. I'm wondering if that structure of feeling, that change in people's feelings, 
does that happen before and then you pull along the the politics and the economy or does it happen after you've managed to somehow change the it's a kind of chicken and egg problem but i know i know but well, what you do in your book is you allow 30 million or is it or 20 million indians in bihar yeah to die to be fried in 6 weeks or whatever it was that very painful first chapter yeah and, and that will cause movement of course uh, and whether we're hindu or muslim will become irrelevant when we're all boiling in the river together yeah you know, and all castes and everything and you you're right but the point is that by that time, so many people die. I really don't like it. this idea that, oh, the kind of old wild-haired prophet, well, billions will die, but the rest of us will be there in teepees, you know? Yes. Why should we have to do that? We can, we can have people all educated, all learning the Dharma, all cultivating their open heart chakra by the millions. Why not? What's wrong with that? You know, there's no reason we can't do that. There are the brilliant visionary author who invented carbon coins, but why are they waiting for more catastrophes before really letting people imagine that? People can imagine that. Well, exactly. This is something I was taught at COP26 in Glasgow by uh, Zaid al-Rad Hussein, one of my most important teachers there, Jordanian diplomat who's worked uh, in the UN Human Rights Office most of his life. And he said, Stan, you don't have to be in a plane crash to know that being in a plane crash would be a bad thing. Exactly. You just have to point out the trajectory and say, let's not crash. Yes. Um, my book, I'm often misunderstood that we'll only act when there's a spectacular heat death I don't think that's right. I think once you think about the spectacular heat death of millions, and which could happen in the Midwest of America, it could happen in the Southeast, as well as in India. Once you've thought that, then you need to act. You can already start to act. Well, that's what your book does. But I'm telling you, I have seen it in the hands of at least four billionaires lately. They like it, and they claim to have read it right through. And then, then I look at them, and what? And then, oh, I'll, I'll, I got to make breakfast for my son next week because I, you know, I got divorced and whatever. You know, I've got to be a good dad, and that's great. And that's it. They think about something else because you can, we can still act like there's a kind of normal going on. You know, I think they just need they need a fire, and you lit it. I'll probably die before 2040, but then the element says I have to come back. I'll be, I'll be like. A, Three-year-old Greta Thunberg or something. I've been female. I don't know. But I just think we need to do it now anyway. Yeah. So listen, so tell me, how did you get started in all of this? You're 70, so you didn't get stoned until 1970, probably. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, you you pegged it precisely. It was going to college. It was the Vietnam War. It was um, the Vietnam protests. Uh, my radicalization was in the early 70s in Southern California, in San Diego. I was a body surfer, a beach kid. Oh, how cool. And, but this is the great thing. Gary Snyder came to campus, gave a reading. I wanted to be a poet. I understood that Gary was an alternative to the alcoholic, patriarchal, jerk, American male writer. Gary was how to do it right. He himself then was only, what, um, 40 years old. So I... Um, I started reading, I read D.T. Suzuki, I read Alan Watts, I read Gary, 
the Zen Buddhism, and, and I know you'll recognize this, the American Buddhism, California movement that is new age, hippie, stoner, informal, Zen in its most, uh, what can I say, California lightweight. Oh, yeah, but wonderful. Well, some of it very intense, though. But not me. I can, I can never meditate more than 10 seconds at a time. You yeah. realize that's lucky. Well, I don't know, but I know no, no, that. I'm telling you, it is lucky. My guru in New Jersey, after I had gone to India and didn't find the right side, came back when my father died and met this guy. And when I would start leaving the body, because I was so flipped out when I discovered the Nagarjuna and so on, he would interrupt me. He said, what are you doing? I, like, uh, people would think you are crazy. I would sneak out in the woods near this place in New Jersey. And he would say, people think we're crazy, having crazy boys here meditating in the middle of the night. What are you doing? He just stopped me from meditating. Hmm. A real Tibetan teacher never teaches you to meditate until you've corrected your irrational egotism. Uh Because you'll create an ego space where you feel very tranked out and you become addicted to that. And then you shut down your analytic insight. And believe me, don't whine about not being a poet. When you write about that guy's laboratory and the Olympics, or when you discuss how you can make a billion in a pharmaceutical in great detail, it's like poetry. But the one big news flash that I've gotten in the last only after 50 years, actually nothing means nothing. Mm. There's no such thing. So nobody's going there. Mm. It's not a dark space. There's no place to go. I have a question for you. Yes. You're reminding me, this um, Buddhism, okay, you go back to the Buddha, 600 BC, but I'm thinking to myself, all around the world, in the farthest spread of the world, you see the same uh, religious practices, shamanism, they call it. Yes. Uh, But I'm thinking that's the original religion. That's the original set of insights. It spread worldwide before it began to deviate by local changes. So that in Tibet, they had the the bone religion. Yes, yes. And that looks to me like shamanism. Doesn't it seem possible that this set of um, practices that you've been practicing and that the Buddha taught, that they're more like 50,000 years old? Definitely. More more like 500,000. The Buddhists have three Buddhas before this Buddha maybe 100,000 between them. And, you know, I don't know, the earth is folded over or who knows what has happened. And so definitely, shamanism is definitely in the same plane. However, the one difference is that more and more animals get to be funneled through the human form into this, like, Buddha world. You know, this is Shakyamuni's Buddha world. And actually, among the thousand Buddhas that come here during the billion years that this earth is habitable, uh, He's the one of the thousand sons, and they have the wonderful legend, who volunteered to come when we only had lived 100 years on average. And we had a lot of violence and wars. And so he was one of the very few born in the Kshatriya warrior class rather than the Brahmin high intellectual class. But he also taught us Tantra, where we could accelerate and compress the experience of many, many lifetimes into a single lifetime in this sort of virtual, you know, matrix-like dream reality. So I love that movie, you know. Into the dream reality, we could have been trained by Morpheus to do martial arts, thinking that we're breathing air, you know. Mm -hmm. We can in this life, you know, as a human. And and that's a tundra will enable us to do that. 
uh, the Buddhists would agree with that. But not that, not that the shaman, though, on the other hand, is, is ready to make a whole society of shamans. No. Everybody can meet the ancestors. Everybody I goes see. up the tree. Oh, Everybody yeah, yeah, finds yeah. the world tree in their central nervous system. Yeah. Everybody has psychic neuroscience. I call it inner neuroscience, where they put their imagination at a stable point in the center of the throat chakra, and then they can instantly learn lucid dreaming and so forth, if they could actually do that. But I don't pretend I can. I'm just a, I'm just reading the result of their 2,500 years of written science. I think what you're saying is that Buddhism is that moment when everybody takes on shamanic powers and not yeah. just the special. So it, it changes from almost like Catholic to Protestant, only in this sense, that you don't need a special intermediary. You do it yourself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's almost what it was. You know, Buddha Shakyamuni himself, you know, even though there are these glorified visions of him, which are, I'm sure are true, actually. I really think so. But he himself, with, the, with those other Indians that he was talking to, the Brahmins, mostly Brahmins and Kshatriyas, but he would allow anybody from anywhere. There were geniuses among the lower ones, and the, he, would, he would ordain the barber before the prince. And then the barber would be the superior of the prince in the order. So he was putting that turnaround into the, pouring it into the society with this beautiful thing that he invented. But he was also, I'm a simple monk. Yes. He could have gone back to the throne that was his at any time his father wanted him to. His father was so embarrassed that he was begging food from poor people. He sent caterers out there with all kinds of feasts, and Buddha would just give that to everybody else, and he, he would still beg. He was just a wandering, homeless man, letting people drop completely out in this moment of extreme fruition. And also, he was a whole community of people. He wasn't just one person. He was many people. And I'm sorry, but you, you yourself are clearly one of them. There's, to me, I, there's no question in my mind. Well, I, I am so um, ignorant that I'm ecumenical to the extreme. My, my Buddhism takes the form of uh, every day I turn into a dog for an hour and chase a frisbee around like a dog. I have that same mindless, present flow state. But my teacher, Frederick Jameson, maybe he's my guru. He's been my teacher since 71. He's still teaching. He's 88. He's on fire. Oh, and, really? Where is he? Well, he's in Connecticut, but he's teaching at Duke University. And it's still French literature. It's still modernism. It's still Marxism. And oh. I'm listening to his classes as a kind of a podcast. They record him now because he's teaching from a distance at Duke, and I got the keys to the kingdom where I listened to his lectures. And three days ago, I was harvesting olives from a tree in order to cure these olives. This is one of the few things I can do that's interesting where I live. And he was lecturing in my ear on Cezanne and on the, the French modernists as their changing of reality. And so he was talking about Cezanne's paintings as I was in a, a Cezanne painting to the extent that the California Central Valley can be it. It was a beautiful addition to my moment, a kind of a cross-temporal thing. The following day, I was in my garden weeding and planting new strawberries, and he was playing Stravinsky's Rite of Spring to show that modernist music was trying to break your brain from the older harmonic tonality yeah. and turn it into something new and fresh. And so... Yes, and they overcome by the intense thing for property. Yes. I'm living a rich life that has 
Buddhism, Marxism, turning into a dog, Gary Snyder, but also California, and a kind of a, a embodied. I was so happy. I love it. Don't you know every New Yorker wants to move there and join that and yeah. to well, tumble into the waves? And yeah. we're not scared shitless because we've already been trounced in Long Island. I'm scared of the ocean, but I'm I'm saying that there's a way of integrating our experiences that is a Buddhist to the core, but it has an extra the the thing that the Japanese monks that they run with a kind of boat on their head around Mount Haya, essentially running meditation. This has saved me from thinking that I'm a bad Buddhist, but I don't think the Buddha cares about that. I don't think the Dalai Lama cares about that. I mean, is there such a thing? Yeah, Dalai Lama, Quest Dalai Lama, loves everyone. He is absolutely sincere. Yeah. He says, I never gave a general talk anywhere on Buddhism with the motive of making anybody be a Buddhist. Yeah. yeah. Everyone should learn everything from everywhere, but keep their grandmother's religion. Mm. Or she will be unhappy. <laughs> but they can be enlightened through every path. If you go to the depth of reality, that's where enlightenment is. And you would have to be open yourself to be real. And that's what it is. It is not some ism. It is not some system. It is not a theory. It is not religion. In the, you know, the, the Dharma, the word Dharma, which has 11 meanings, the Buddhists said from 2,000 years ago. And one meaning is holding... It comes from the verb to hold something, holding you in your duty, in your custom, in the pattern of law. And it still has that meaning. It also means holding a phenomenon in its individual behavioral characteristic. Buddha added a set of meanings where it means holding you in freedom from suffering. Mm. In reality, it's holding you in the one true reality, which is nirvana, which is actually the reality of right here and now, every single thing, all the time. We can always fight the good fight without labels, names, or saints, or political leaders that then take over the freshness of our thinking. That's right. All that can be made new and uh, by just doing the right things. And of course, we're in a political battle. You can't get too simple-minded about it. It's a specific political battle. But you've been so uh, scholarly. I mean, the, you're like... You're the last person I, to complain about, you know, getting too simplistic because you've taken it to be a discipline with a, a technique and a kind of a science of thinking. So um, that's, that's what we need. Yeah, well, that's Vipassana. That's, that's what Vipassana really means, you know. V, v means to anal analyze. Passana means seeing. So analytically seeing. The ultimate reality, perfection, wisdom is the transmutation of the energy of hatred. Because intelligence and hatred are totally linked, you know? Mm. And, and we also take everything apart to find out what it is. And, and that's why people don't understand. I love scientists for their methodology and their paparianism, which is catching up with Buddha, actually, which is taking everything apart and never allowing so-called law to become dogma. Yes. I can see the hunger for the story in the response in these last couple of years. It's been astonishing, alarming, a little bit painful, because to see that kind of hunger is to realize that people are living in dread because they don't think 
things can work when things really can work. Exactly. So in the fight over ideas, this is a Marxist term uh, from Raymond Williams, a structure of feeling. We live in a structure of feeling. We have our Mm -hmm. animal emotions because we are animals. Mm -hmm. And the feelings can be structured by language, by culture, by history, by other Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. That structure of feeling, I feel, is now... It's that famous moment that Gramsci talked about. The old order has fallen apart, doesn't work, is clearly going to kill us all. The new order has not yet been born, imagined, or instituted, but it's being imagined. It's in a moment of birth. It has to happen fast. We're trying to bring it. In the new structure Mm -hmm. of feeling, it won't make sense to poison the biosphere in order to do trivial things. And and Mm -hmm. that'll just be the common sense. So... Anything that hurries that up, we need mm-hmm. it. We're grateful to you, Scott, for uh, trying to stir the pot, bring us together, and and uh, make that happen faster, this structure of feeling change. Absolutely. You too. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me in this special dialogue between Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman and science fiction author and climate activist Kim Stanley Robinson. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. We also have a private meditation discussion group that you can join, which you'll find a link to at the bottom of our website. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode, Christian Perry for audio mastering, and Isabella Asibel for marketing, digital production, and social media. We wish you a wonderful day.